TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hi, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me. I'm Felix. And I'm me here. So I'm coming to you remote. And yesterday, I looked out my window, and it was snowing like crazy. No. Yes, you were in Vermont? I am. And it snowed yesterday. Oh, it's my pretty God. pretty heavy snow. Did it, it make so you happy? It was so beautiful. It did. Yeah. The first snow? Yes. Fantastic. Amazing. It's fantastic. It's so true. But I think this is the time when New England shines. You know, the colors are spectacular. Yeah. There's a little chill in the air. Yeah. I just find it to be completely exhilarating and fantastic. I agree with you. So, Mihir, is that why you came in excited tonight? Because you're exhilarated <laughs> by the change in seasons? <laughs> exactly. That and all the fascinating issues going on with chip companies and supply chain issues. That's yes. what I want to talk about. Wait a minute. We're talking about supply chains again? Yes. But this time, it's even more interesting because it's about chips and the industry behind the chips and trying to understand what's going on in that world of Intel and NVIDIA and Taiwan Semiconductor, but particularly Intel. There's some really, really fascinating things going on in that industry, and I want to get your take on it. Yeah. And then we each brought in a headline that we wanted to talk about as well, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sounds great. Okay, we here. You wanted to talk about Intel. And, you know, it's been like five minutes since we've talked about the supply chain. So I think we got to get back to it. <laughs> yes. So, of course, people are talking about shortages in chips. But what is the underlying industry and what is happening to the players in that industry? Mm. So Intel in the last six months has lost 30% of its value. At the same time, companies that you may not have even heard of are now like the seventh and eighth largest companies in America. Mm -hmm. So once you get past all the common names, Apple and Google and everyone else, you end up with NVIDIA and Taiwan Semiconductor. Mm -hmm. These are the chip players. Yeah. And in fact, if you had, instead of buying Intel six months ago, had bought NVIDIA, you would have doubled your money. So there's a lot <laughs> going on in the background here. And in particular, what I find fascinating with what's happening with Intel is they are really stumbling. And they're stumbling for several reasons. One is they're in these parts of the market that are maybe less interesting, like PC. But underneath it all is also a sense in which one of America's great, great technology companies of the last 50 years has had trouble keeping up yeah. with the remarkable likes of AMD, NVIDIA, and other folks. So what is Intel doing now? 
So if you think about the industry as basically being about design and manufacturing, Intel's proposition was always, we will come, for example, to Apple and say, we will design and manufacture your chips. So what has been happening recently? Companies have been wanting to design their own chips and then work potentially with manufacturers separately, which is what Apple now does. So then Apple now designs its chips and then works with manufacturers like Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung in the background. So what is Intel's reaction to this? Mm. So what they've decided to do is take a big bet and do even more manufacturing than they ever have done before. And they're effectively going to be doubling CapEx. So just to get an order of magnitude of the numbers, they're pouring $25 billion into the ground this year, next year, and the year after, which is just remarkable amounts of CapEx mm -hmm. in places like Arizona to create domestic foundries that will be strict manufacturing capacity that will help Intel, but also could be bundled to other people who now want to design their own chips. Mm -hmm. Including the Department of Defense. Including the yes. DOD. In part, it's subsidized by the Department of Defense because uh, they're worried about we don't really have domestic production capacity. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And this is part of what the Biden administration has done, which is try to put an emphasis on domestic chip capacity. You know, Taiwan Semiconductor is going to be in Arizona too, though. <laughs> But the last <laughs> yes. thing I just wanted to say about this is, for Intel, it feels like a binary moment which is they have fallen behind. And the new CEO, who's a really interesting guy, Pat Gelsinger, is doubling down and saying, we are going to go into the most capital-intensive piece of the chain and double down. And that is either going to work and be amazing, or it's not. <laughs> and so it feels like a kind of binary moment for the company. A couple things have happened, I think, over the last 12 to 18 months that have really brought this to the fore. So number one, I think we have all realized how pervasive chips are and what happens when that <laughs> supply chain gets disrupted. <laughs> right. So we had never really thought about how many chips are in an automobile. We never thought about our washing machines. And at the same time, how heavily dependent we are on a very small number of players that are producing chips in a somewhat complicated supply chain. Right. But a second thing is that on the one hand, this is a conversation about business. Right. But on the other hand, it's a conversation about geopolitics and right. geopolitical vulnerability associated with huge swaths of our consumption being at the mercy of a few companies, some of which may not be U.S. companies. And then layered on top of that is recognizing even more acutely that we are living in a world where there are some countries out there, like China, for example, which is very comfortable with what we would call state-sponsored capitalism, where they are very happy to prop up the most important companies in China, whereas in the U.S., we have much more of an ambivalence toward that. So right now, you see Intel putting a lot of pressure on the U.S. government to subsidize even more. <laughs> And it's a geopolitical question for us, but it's also a business question mm -hmm. because we're a country that still embraces free markets. And perhaps the most important chokehold we haven't even spoken about, among the companies that produce equipment that is used in semiconductor manufacturing, there's one type of company where we're literally left with a single entity. ASML in right. the Netherlands mm -hmm. provides this type of equipment and There's literally no substitute and also no substitute in sight. And then guess what? A few years ago, the Netherlands agreed to sell it to China. And it was only after 
pretty heavy <laughs> lobbying and intervention by the U.S. that the sale got blocked. Right. And right. to your point, Youngmi, imagine the geopolitics when you have a component that is so important and then one just key ingredient only comes from one particular geography. Yeah. And can you subsidize your way to more competition? Is that really how this is going to work? Yeah. Or should you say... When it comes to manufacturing capacity, we have Taiwan, we have Samsung, probably willing to, for the right conditions, willing to expand supply. Or is our basic intuition that markets will sort it out, just not quite correct in an environment where the fixed cost, the capital that exactly. is required to build any one of these plants, the numbers are astounding. And there's a larger theme underneath all this, which is where have capital intensive businesses migrated in the last 40 years? to the east and mm -hmm. in a direction where capital was being subsidized. And so you have leaders in capital-intensive sectors who have migrated out of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And U.S. technological leadership comes in capital-light business models. <laughs> and that's yeah. no coincidence, mm -hmm. which is just a way of saying we have chosen not to do that. And now Intel, DOD are saying, well, wait a second, maybe we do want to do that. And then the China example also shows that all the subsidies in the world don't really create winners in any clear way. Like SMIC, right. the Chinese mm -hmm. chip manufacturer, and they were favored in every way you can possibly imagine. And yet they're not a leading company in the field. Yeah. I mean, they have a particular position in the world of semiconductor manufacturing, but by no stretch of the imagination are they a leading company. And indeed, the whole Taiwanese piece of this is so fascinating. Yeah. People don't even understand how large a company TSMC is. I mean, I think TSMC provides at least 50% of the chips in the world. I mean, that's a stunning statistic. Yeah. And especially on the high end, one producer. Exactly. On the low end in your car and in your fridge or whatever, there's a bunch of low end stuff. But it's on the high end that they dominate. But even you take a company like Samsung, and yes, they're now building plants in the U.S., but Samsung at the end of the day is still a national champion. Mm -hmm. So if you're sitting in the West, on the one hand, it's fantastic that we have these partnerships that extend across borders. On the other hand, it really mm. underscores the vulnerability associated with not having a strong intel or a yeah. strong player on our own. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting aspects of all of this is how the sources of competitive advantage shift over time. Intel's advantage was always the integration of design and manufacturing. Right. They were faster than AMD to the next generation. And then typically, you know, one guy comes out, there's a lot of followers, prices decline very quickly. So the speed with which you can produce at scale that next generation determines everything. Mm. If you're late in the game, say if you're just half a year later, then essentially the opportunity is much, much smaller, which of course is now one of Intel's problems. Yeah, exactly. That they have delay after delay after delay in coming out with the next product generations. This push towards manufacturing is in part predicated on the company's ability to not only catch up, but implement the most advanced manufacturing technologies. It's almost like, as opposed to thinking much about the integration of design and manufacturing, you now double down on manufacturing and say, we're going to use all of these new approaches to manufacturing that will really set us apart. But do we know? Well, do we know if that works? 
But I got to say, I think there's like a little bit of a flashback for me, which is if you think about the 80s and 90s as being characterized by global industrial policy questions about whether Toyota should build a plant in South Carolina, mm, what are yeah. our American car <laughs> companies going to do? That's where this is going. Mm-hmm. In terms of the overall arc of chips pervading our life, young me, as you put it, the next 10 or 20 years is going to be more of that. And these issues are only going to become, I think, more politically complicated and economically complicated and business-wise, I think, complicated. And with an interesting twist as far as subsidies are concerned, right? When you think about the automobile game, it was largely state against state. The southern states that wanted to attract manufacturing capacity and subsidize generously the plants that were being built. Now it's almost like we upped the game in that the subsidies now now provided at the federal level. Right. Because we see the relevant competition as countries against countries. Yeah. And mm-hmm. of course, the amount of money that is going to be spent is going to be much bigger. That's the interesting question. How do you feel about it as a taxpayer? And one of the other interesting dynamics associated with this story is how this part of it has been underplayed. In other words, you see headlines about chip shortages every day. <laughs> True. The part that you don't see a lot of discussion on is, so therefore, what does that mean in terms of our biggest player in this space, which is Intel, and this incredible transformation they're trying to embark on? Yeah. And to what extent should we as a country be supporting that? And is that our job even in a free market Mm -hmm. society? Or should we be much more agnostic about the winners and losers in this case? And the other part of it, Young Me, that's underneath the headlines is we talk about bigness all the time, but we talk about Facebook and Google. Yeah. That's where our emphasis on bigness is. And actually, Mm -hmm. look here. If you want to think about bigness, there's some really interesting dynamics on bigness here that may matter maybe far more in the long run. So, look, it's going to be really fantastic to watch. You have one of America's great technology companies kind of in a bet the company mode. You have remarkable Taiwanese and Korean companies who have just risen without people even really noticing it. Mm -hmm. And now you have the politics of it all as we come to understand how important these chips are to our lives going forward. So that cocktail of things, I think is just gonna be fantastic to watch over the next several years. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. Okay, so we each brought in another story that we wanted to talk about. Felix, you want to go first? What'd you bring in? I saw this really interesting story. It's the kind of story that makes you step back and think about, oh my God, these big changes in the economy. And it felt so different from the current conversation. The current conversation is all about we can't find workers, wages are rising very quickly. Mm. And this story connected to a longer run trend that I don't think we talk about very often. So this is a group of people who study business dynamism. So since the 1980s, 
every year we have fewer new firms. Every year we have less exits. So the firms survive for some reason for a longer period of time. And then the new firms that do come about, they hire far fewer people. And in the last 20 years, we have fewer and fewer firms that grow very quickly. Mm. And then, of course, in venture capital, there's all this optimism about mm -hmm. entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and investment opportunities. And I couldn't really get the two things together. Like, how can that be that on the one hand, we have fewer young firms, and then at the same time, we're really, really excited about the firms that we have. And what the story pointed out is that today's young company has a very interesting mix in that, on average, a person that is employed has an amazing amount of sales. Mm -hmm. But if you ask, what would happen if that firm hired additional workers? Then, for some reason, those additional jobs almost don't do anything for the firm. And so, as a result, you get fewer firms that hire fewer people. What do you make of this idea? I mean, there's several layers to this story. Mm -hmm. I think one is the extent to which value creation, particularly with respect to the firms that we think of as being exciting new firms, has become so disconnected with the number of employees you have. Yeah. And so yeah. if you think about a statistic like how much revenue does a firm generate per employee, some of our biggest and brightest companies like Netflix and Apple they are generating now like $2 million in revenue per employee. Uh -huh. It's yeah. astounding. astounding. So to your point, each employee is just astoundingly productive. If you compare that to an, the average small business, the average small business generates maybe $100,000 per employee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because of this, it feels like the divisions in our economy have become more and more acute. Because the investment dollars mm -hmm. is all pouring increasingly into this segment of companies where there's not a whole lot of job creation, mm -hmm, and yet mm -hmm. there's a huge amount of wealth creation. Yeah, this is totally fascinating for the reasons I think Young Me and you all are suggesting. And I think there's a good news version of it, and it feels like there might be a bad news version of it. Mm -hmm. So the good news version of it is it's fundamentally the nature of technological change, and we have these breakthrough technological changes that are creating enormous amounts of value, but with relatively few employees because the technological changes are so fundamental that you don't need to add labor to make them. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's the sunny version. And I think <laughs> the less sunny version is there are what some people would call rents, that there are these kind of vaguely monopoly-like profits that are happening from these people who are living mm. in these worlds. And it's not entirely about the virtues of the technological change but it is somehow a manifestation of some crazy monopoly power that is manifesting these super high profits and these quote-unquote rents. And so I think it's fascinating and it makes sense. It still leaves open the question which of those... Which it is. Which yeah. of those two yeah. stories yeah. it is. Mm -hmm. And it's one of these things, it's probably not one or the other. Right. The good part of that story is, of course, that growth and output for the economy as a whole doesn't suffer that much, right? Because mm -hmm. people who do have these jobs, they're highly paid, and so consumption doesn't really fall that much. The not-so-great consequence, almost irrespective of which is the underlying reason, is that this creates this enormous divide that we see. Yeah. That incomes for some groups grow very nicely, very quickly over the long run. And then for many other groups, that's much less the case. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, in many ways, the promise of these digitally native companies is the fact that they can be so efficient. And by efficient, I mean, with very few people, they can generate a lot of value creation. And it creates Mm -hmm. the divide, Felix, that you referred to. It's manifest from the birth of these companies, but then it sort of accelerates over time because as these companies start to succeed, their ability to, for example, compensate their employees really, really well just increases over time. The number of investment dollars they attract increases over time. I mean, all of this stuff just sort of accelerates. And so you see this division in our economy Mm -hmm. right now between the types of employees who tend to gravitate to those kinds of roles and the types of employees who are simply locked out of those kinds of positions. Yeah. I also just wonder a lot about the way people achieve scale today. So I was just thinking about benefits in HR. Yeah. As a company scaled in the past, you would create that function and you would hire a bunch of people. And now you don't necessarily. You outsource all of the benefits to a benefits provider. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And of course, obviously, if you don't want to manufacture the thing, then you can get someone to manufacture it for you. Or, you know, I mean, it is this whole unbundling of activity. So what you observe is firms Mm -hmm. managing things in contractual ways that maybe historically they would have internalized. Yes, yeah. So part of it is this nature of technological change maybe. But I do wonder if there's an organizational form question or like a contracting question Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I just think like as you grow, you don't hire a bunch of people in benefits anymore. This is one of the reasons why the underlying mechanism has such dramatic consequences for how we think about the health of the economy long term. Mm -hmm. If it's Mm -hmm. your story, me here, it's basically just a shift between sectors. If It's the story that there is artificial rents and artificial profits because many of these big platforms are sort of monopolistic. That, I think, is a much unhealthier version of the story. Mm -hmm. I think there's big rethinking about the dangers of monopolistic competition for the economy as a whole. And what I thought was particularly interesting is we're so obsessed with the top 0.1%, like trying to understand what happens at the very top. But Mm -hmm. this, in a sense, is a much broader mechanism. Mm. This might actually explain why the middle income of the distribution changes mm-hmm. where a vast majority of well-educated workers don't quite find the opportunity that they would have found if you have a different structure of the economy. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it is so fascinating to think about these larger questions because we spend so much time talking about the top and the bottom, but it is the middle <laughs> yes. that in many ways gets neglected in that conversation. It's a super, super interesting story. Yeah. yeah. So, Mihir, what did you bring in? Well from the sacred to the profane, from 100,000 feet (laughs) (laughs) down to 10 feet. So the headline that grabbed my attention was Zillow. Oh, I saw that. I just thought this was a fantastic story. The headline is Zillow kind of lost like 30% of its market cap and it's way down. But the really interesting story is what did they announce? And whether you knew it or not, Zillow, which is that website you go to to check out your neighbor's house price, (laughs) has a pretty (laughs) remarkable business. But two to three years ago, they started going into another business. And that business was buying houses. And just stop for a moment and think about that. Yeah, Zillow started buying houses and then flipping them. And they started in LA and they built up a pretty sizable portfolio. And guess what? it turns out to be more complicated. (laughs) Like flip billions of dollars of real estate in a given year at $300,000 a clip. And so they are exiting the business. 
And, you know, this is a story with real consequences. A quarter of their workforce is going to be let go. They also have a financing business, which is looking questionable. And the story that I think was just so striking to me was first, how did Zillow lose their way into thinking that they could very quickly become a real estate investor and a house flipper at scale? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the second question is, when they left the business, they were left saying, well, it turns out it's harder to predict real estate prices than we thought. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which for a platform company in the real estate space is kind of a complicated thing to admit. And they're out of the business, but they still got a lot of inventory on their books that they've got to liquidate. They've extended a lot of credit in Mm -hmm. a separate financing business that grew up. And by the way, the core business, which is that platform business, actually is doing fine. And they just went in this completely other direction, and now they are backtracking. So, I don't know. There's so many levels to the story. Yeah. Look, as you put it, the legacy Zillow business is a really good business. It's a high-margin business. But that business consists of advertising and listing fees and lead generation. Right. And it's not clear what the total potential size of that business could be. And Mm -hmm. the concern is that maybe they've already begun tapping it out. And so they were looking for a new growth engine. And so you would think that one of the primary advantages that a company like Zillow has in this market is its proprietary data. Right. And so you think, okay, imagine a business that can mechanistically and algorithmically flip houses based on having this advantage in understanding and being able to predict prices. On paper, is it crazy? Mm. I don't know that it's crazy, but it ended up being much, much more difficult than they anticipated. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy to think that in the context of a market where home prices have been going up, 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 they haven't been able to take advantage of this, but I guess your models aren't always as good as you think they are. I think you put your finger on it, which is, first off, there's this part of the story, which is, I love the story of like, oh yeah, we'll just AI ML our way through this and like, (laughs) we'll get the prices right. And it's like, no, it's not like that. And then second, It's just losing your way because growth expectations have to be satisfied. Because they were stuck, by the way. Their stock was stuck for like a long time. time, And then this was like meant to be the thing. And it just feels like, wow, when you're trying to feed the beast, you can convince yourself to do really, really crazy things. Yeah. I mean, I understand it didn't work out, but I see it in a little more positive light. I think one of the things that is really interesting about the Zillow business model is think about where house prices come from. So say you're trying to sell your home. To a first approximation, you have no idea how much you should charge. And so you hire this guy called a real estate agent. And what they will do is they will come with seven quote-unquote comparables, which are homes in roughly the same neighborhood. They have a feel that they're sort of the same. But really, the price that you end up asking for is pulled out of thin air. It Mm. certainly seems much less sophisticated than what Zillow could do. And so I'm wondering if this is as much a story about algorithms that are trained during a particular period, Mm -hmm. don't make very good predictions when things change Mm -hmm. dramatically the way they do during COVID. And of course, you know, the counter argument is, but prices are rising. You should be even better off than you expected. But I have to say, lucky they didn't ask me, so I feel no responsibility. But if they had asked me, is it a reasonable idea to try? I would probably have said, yeah, it's a reasonable idea to try. Yeah. And this is what I think is so compelling about the story is 
what does it mean to go into an adjacent business? Mm -hmm. And the logic here is in a way compelling, which is we have information. We predict prices anyway for our customers. Why wouldn't we capitalize on that? Mm -hmm. And I think first you end up with egg on your face because you have to say you don't know how to predict prices, which is actually yeah. part of the core business. <laughs> <laughs> but also I just think you have a great business and investing is different. Yes. Buying these assets is different. It is not what a platform business is. Yes. And the expertise is not really complementary. I think, yes, the expertise is different. But I think importantly, what's also different is your disposition as a company. Yeah. It requires a different kind of company with a different personality type to be able to play this game. And it's interesting. Their CEO, Rich Barton, he had egg on his face when he came out and said, mm -hmm. we're pulling out of this market. And if you read the story, the language he used, he was essentially saying, look, we just don't have the stomach for this. Yeah, right. Taking yeah. on this kind of That's risk. Different. It's just a very, very different kind of business. Exactly. And it did make me also reflect on that Z estimate tool they have, yeah. which has been such a marketing bonanza for them. Mm -hmm. And I've always assumed that this tool is a reflection of how good the company is at predicting price. But as I thought about it more, I realized because it's only ever been used to attract customers to the top of the purchase funnel, it's only ever really had to be directionally correct. It's never had to be empirically precise, not the kind of precision they need to be able to cover the not so great spreads mm -hmm, they're mm -hmm. trying to achieve from flipping these homes. Mm -hmm. So even if they're directionally correct, but they're awful little, the spreads aren't that great. Right. And so if you can't beat the spread... You're not going to make money. I just take your point about the stomach, kind of having the stomach that's for the good, business. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the kind of complementarity that we don't see, right? So yeah. like I'm meaning, yeah, you're right, information. We know a lot of what's going on in local real estate markets. Yeah, yeah. we got information, no question about that. Yeah, but is that what it really takes to do that business well? <laughs> it is about the tolerance for risk. It is about having the stomach. Yeah. It's a whole different mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm. Kudos to them for recognizing a mistake. It's nice yeah, to see that's them. That's true, yeah. But I think it's going to continue to be a fascinating story to watch because they have to unload like a lot of inventory yeah. and it's yeah, on yeah. sale. Yeah. And it's not so straightforward to do that. And we'll see what ends up happening. So I think it's a fun story to watch over the next couple of months. So Yangmi, what's your headline? What caught your attention? Oh, okay. So you know how I've been in bringing in stories about space. <laughs> yes. This one is not about space <laughs> because apparently some billionaires are obsessed with space, but other billionaires are focusing on the earth. And so... I brought in a story about Mark Lore, oh. who most recently ran Walmart's e-commerce business. But before that, he founded diapers.com and jet.com. But he's a billionaire. Yeah. And he has announced plans to build a new utopian city in the American desert, a city of the future called Telosa. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Now, what exactly is a city of the future, you ask? <laughs> well... <laughs> It is a city that's been designed from the ground up for sustainability and a minimal carbon footprint with carefully designed transportation systems and water systems and equal access health care and schooling mm. designed to attract a really diverse population, diverse along multiple dimensions. It's expected to cost half a trillion dollars to build and could eventually house five million people. And so he's out there raising money. And these are just early days, so who knows if it's ever going to happen. But the reason I this caught my eye is that he is not the only one. So Bill Gates mm -hmm. apparently is toying with the idea yes. of building a smart city outside Phoenix. There are other folks also looking to build cities from the ground up. 
And I know the tendency when you hear a story like this is to roll your eyes, and maybe that's the right response. But it has made me wonder what the alternatives are. In other words, it's really hard to retrofit an existing city to be future-facing. And at least in this country, urban planning is typically mired in local politics. And so there's got to be a way forward. And I'm wondering, when you hear a story like this, do you consider it to be a viable alternative way for us to think about the city of the future? Or are you more skeptical about pie-in-the-sky ideas like this? I find it completely fascinating that people make these proposals and The question that I find most interesting is, look at any real city. It's such a mess. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It really is. Like the things that don't work, the things that are not coordinated. You would think building a competitor to an existing city is the easiest thing on the planet because our cities are so imperfect. And then every serious attempt to do so, just think about all the cities that China has tried to build. Mm -hmm. So I have two things that I find fascinating. The first one is when they do these presentations, they always show you the city once it's completely built and people have moved in. Right. You never see the phase where you're the first person in that city and there might be a lot of real estate. But in a sense... I think people vastly underestimate the coordination problem. If you could jump into a better future, many of these new city projects, what Saudi Arabia is doing now, the 100-kilometer mm-hmm. city that's yeah. on a line, yeah. I think if you could jump into that future, I think it would actually be amazing. But you can't. You have to find the first 15 families who want to move there. And that, I think, is just much, much harder than people assume. Yeah, I confess, I am so deeply skeptical, Mm -hmm. both because there's just not a lot of evidence that this works. And by (laughs) the way, people have been trying. So in Korea, there's a fascinating plant city, Mm -hmm. Songdo. There's talk of another one in Palestine. There's Rawabi. In Nigeria, there's Abuja, maybe one of the more successful ones. And, you know, it kind of did work maybe 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think about Chandigarh in India, Uh a super interesting example. But it always feels like these efforts by billionaires are contrived and they're vaguely mystical. So I think this one in particular, Young Me, he's like talking about a whole new way that citizens will have voice. No, no, no. Mihir, you don't want to read the details. The more wacky this seems. And also it just feels like... You know, you guys kind of were characterizing cities as really screwed up. I mean, I love cities. I love our cities. And it is the chaos of them. And it is the way they morph and the way they change and the way we adapt that I find endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so why we would then say, no, let's do it de novo in the desert and let's see what happens. (laughs) The reason I wanted to get your thoughts on it is I think we should be talking about cities more. Mm -hmm. They are both magnificent and they are disastrous in many ways. Right. Environmentally disastrous in many cases. They can be disastrous from a transportation standpoint, from a commuting standpoint. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so many things broken about our cities and so many things to celebrate. And here you mentioned a number of examples. I think in some countries, the notion of a planned city is much more common. I mean, Singapore is a textbook example. Yeah. But the results in general, as you said, have been really mixed. I mean, is Dubai a success story or is it not? You could make both arguments. On the other hand, when we let the free market loose and we give any combination of investors and entrepreneurs and real estate developers free reign, you can end up with 
Las Vegas. Las Vegas exists as a result of a really laissez-faire approach that ended up being completely optimized for financial returns. And so we have the Strip. So I have very mixed feelings about this, but I do feel like we're not talking about it enough. We're not thinking about it enough. And I wonder why we celebrate private citizens who take it upon themselves to try to build electric cars or do other things. And yet, if someone decides to take it upon themselves to try to thoughtfully design a community, that feels like a kind of social engineering that really rubs us the wrong way. Because hmm. I, like you, I have the same ambivalence when I read stories like this, but I don't know what the answer is. So, Yungu, that's a really provocative way to think about it. And I guess my answer is there's a difference between engineering and social engineering. Yes. So, kudos to people who think about engineering a better electric vehicle. Like, I'm excited about that. And then we all get to think about how it impacts society and we kind of come to an understanding of the way it changes our nature of interactions. Social engineering is different. (laughs) And in part, that's what politics is for, is for kind of coming to those collective decisions. It just feels like the track record on this kind of social engineering is kind of complicated. Mm. And then I think on top of that, the financial aspect. I mean, give Chicago... $200 million, half a trillion dollars, and see what change you could make in a real existing city. Yeah. Yeah. If you're willing to either give or half the money or organize the funding, why not put it into better public transportation? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, take half a trillion dollars and put it in the New York City subway system and We can make many things much better than they are today. And I think if that billionaire were here, he would say... Are you serious? You want to give half a trillion dollars to Chicago? You know what will happen to it? Yeah. It'll get yeah. wasted away. Yeah. The only way to do yeah. this is to start from scratch. Yeah. What I think is so interesting about what you just said, Felix, it is that on a blank sheet of paper, you can imagine anything. Yeah. Yeah. And it is yeah. the great attraction yeah. of a blank sheet of paper. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I expect to see more conversation about this going forward. I think the wealthiest people in the world have gotten more ambitious about how to put their imprint on things, whether it's on Earth or in space or whatever. The reason I feel a little bit more open-minded about it than perhaps you guys is I would love to see more extreme experiments being done in real time where we're building things that are trying to be, as I said, more future-facing with respect to Mm -hmm. some of the most intractable problems in our cities. I think you've got to be right about that, which is we need more innovation and we need more experimentation. And it's kind of a deep question, which is do you experiment within the constraints of existing structures or do you kind of go for that blank sheet of paper? And in a way, it's not surprising that these are all entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, exactly. They made their billions by starting fresh. Although Felix now made me think of something I hadn't thought of, which is, if you had asked me, would you be willing to move to one of them? I would have said, yeah, maybe. But then if you asked me a second question, which is, would you be willing to be the first to move to one of these? The answer (laughs) is probably no. So anyway, okay, thanks, guys. Okay, recommendations. I'll go first because it's related to what we just talked about, which is I have a book that I read a while ago, but I thought of it as a result of this conversation about cities. And the book is called A History of Future Cities by Daniel Brooke. Hmm. And what he does is he goes back and he explores four cities 
that were designed to meet the challenges of the new century. And there are St. Petersburg, Shanghai, Mumbai, and Dubai. Oh, oh great okay. cities. That's fantastic. And he list. takes you back to the original conception behind these cities and why they were constructed the way they were. And in the process of that, he kind of maps out the landscape of how people around the world think about the idea of a city. Hmm. And Hmm. so I would highly, highly recommend it. It's been a few years since I read it, but ahead of this taping, I went back and took another look at it, and it's good. Wow, that sounds fascinating. That sounds great. And what a coincidence. I was reminded by the conversation also of a podcast, actually, that I heard that was about a utopian city. The podcast is Far Flung with Salim Rashamwala, and he takes you to North Carolina, he and a friend, and they go to a place called Soul City. And Soul City was an urban project that got started in 1969, Mm. and it was meant to be a city for black people where there's real black ownership, where there's black businesses, where both elected officials but also individuals can really create something that they can call home. I had never heard of Soul City, so just learning the history of that place and then what happened politically, that alone is interesting. But what makes it particularly touching is Salim's friend grew up in North Carolina in a place that... I think it's very similar to the place where Soul City was supposed to be built. And she describes a little bit what's that like growing up on a dirt road, the house is owned by a white person, and then you have to move and the next house is owned by a white person as well. And so it's both sort of the racial dynamics today and this utopian project, what would a city look like if it was predominantly black. So the whole episode is just a fascinating trip through American history with so many overtones that ring true and important today. That's great. So wait, is it a series? So the podcast itself is called Far Flung because they take you to an interesting place. It's completely different every time. Oh, nice. It's just it's grounded in some location. And this one is called A Black Utopia in North Carolina. Wow, fantastic. All right, well, include a link. Great. And then here, did you bring also something about cities in? Well, all of you are making me think that I should have two recommendations, which I'm now going to do. (laughs) (laughs) True to form. Yeah, exactly. So first... Ed Glazer and David Cutler have a new book called Survival of the City, and it's a really optimistic take on the future of cities, and it's a really Ah. nice book. But my real story is, you know, when you come to a certain age— Reading glasses become an issue. But you just turned 30. I know, I know. I'm just looking into the future. And you know, that moment is a little confusing and crazy, and so you have to get used to buying reading glasses, and it's a terrible market. You can either buy basically disposable ones that you just lose constantly at CVS, and that's like the $15, $20 market, or there's like a high-end market, like 100 bucks a pop. You go to iBobs or something like this. And I have found the perfect brand that is in the middle, and I just love it. It's also got a great name. It's called Easy peasy. It is a French brand. Their target market is me here. They're available widely, but I found them at the MOBA Design Store, which is also a fantastic store. But they are durable. They are fashionable. They last. It's a great brand, and it's just fantastic. So my recommendation is Easy Peasy 
for reading glasses. <laughs> Wonderful. Here, they had you at Easy Peasy. They did. You're right. right. <laughs> you saw that Easy Peasy. You are so right. Thought, okay, I got to try it. Wait a second. I know maybe in 10 years when you need reading glasses or 30 yeah. years, young me, yeah. check them out. They're okay. fantastic. You think they'll be around? If they're still around. I don't know if they'll still be around. They're going to have taken over the market. It's an optimistic take. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. That's it for tonight. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.